Here's a first statement of my session this morning. Jesus is the most captivating and challenging person who ever lived. I wonder if you'd agree with that. Jesus is the most captivating and challenging person who ever lived. Why? Well, because he's God. And so it's not surprising that he should captivate our hearts and that he should challenge us as well. That's what I think what we're finding out in this countercultural Jesus series. We're looking at 10 places in Matthew's account where Jesus confronts the culture of his day and equally confronts the culture of our day. And I think it would be fair to say that one of the areas where Jesus confronts most directly the prevailing attitudes of our day is sex. Now, this is a vast subject. I'm going to try and stick to the text rather than other things we could say from the Bible. It's a vast subject. There will be a thousand things I can't get to this morning. Please be aware of that. I'm also aware that on one hand, it's an intriguing subject, perhaps, but also it could be a very emotive subject. It could be a very painful subject. I'm aware of that. I'm going to have to go as rapidly as I can through this material. Society's wish for freedom from sexual boundaries, largely from the 60s, particularly because of the pill and reliable, though not guaranteed, but reliable contraception, has led, I would say, to both sexual saturation and sexual confusion. And we're left with huge pressure on people to look a certain way, to believe that who you are sexually defines you, to believe that fulfilment is found in being sexually active, though I've heard, I don't know if you've heard, but various surveys say there is less sex happening these days than there was. And where access today to sexual stimulation is enormous business, and so much more accessible in our day by being always only a secret click away. Culture has an enormous amount to say about sex. It is absolutely right that we might anticipate Jesus to have something to say as well. Let's read a few verses from what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30 say this. Jesus is speaking, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Those are interesting, stark, dramatic words. The first thing you've got to note is this. That in a very male-centered culture of Jesus' day, with a very male-centered sexual ethic, the teaching of the Bible was quite literally revolutionary. 
literally revolutionary. Here in this passage, Jesus is addressing men specifically, though clearly it's applicable to all of us. In a time when a married man could be sexually active outside marriage, as long as it did not involve a married woman. But woe betide if the woman did likewise. And then later on in the Bible, a couple of passages that demonstrate the revolutionary nature of the Bible's teaching, the New Testament teaching on marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Husbands, love your wives... This is completely countercultural to the day. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's revolutionary. No, that's what the women do for the, that's what the wives do for the husbands. And Jesus here says, no, the husbands do that for the wives. In this way, Paul is writing, says, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. The husband has an obligation to love his wife sacrificially. That was revolutionary. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing again about marriage and sexual relations. And he says this, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. They'd say, so what? That's no news to us. This is revolutionary. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. The mutuality of marriage, including sexuality, was an absolutely revolutionary thing. And here, Jesus addresses adultery. Well, adultery and sexual immorality more broadly was an issue in Jesus' day, just as it is in our day. It's been an issue, of course, from almost the moment time began. But what do we mean by sexual sin? Do we just mean adultery? Well, in Jesus' day, it was narrowly defined, adultery was narrowly defined as a man having sex with a married woman. But taking Jesus and the New Testament writers together, it's clear that bisexual sin we mean any sexually stimulating or intimate activity with someone who isn't your spouse. I don't know if there is a more countercultural teaching than that today. And none of us can dodge what Jesus says here because he challenges every single one of us. Married, single, Old, young, widowed, divorced. Why all of us? Because in one way or another, each of us has a heart and mind issue when it comes to sex in some way. And because we are all playing a part in developing culture. So his words apply to every one of us. And there are three stages in what he says here in Matthew chapter 5. Firstly, he says this, you have heard that it was said. So verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's quoting the seventh of the ten commandments. And he is affirming the sexual ethic in the Old Testament. He's not saying, you heard that it was said, I tell you that was a load of rubbish, let me tell you something new. He's not, he's not doing that at all. 
He's affirming the Old Testament sexual ethic, which was this, that a one man, one woman covenant called marriage is the sole God-given place for a sexual relationship. But why? Why would God create such a narrow definition? Why is that his decision and design on this matter? For a, a desire so deeply ingrained, although very different for very different people, but so deeply ingrained in humankind and such a powerful thing, that seems a pretty narrow application, doesn't it? Our culture would say it's outrageously narrow. Well, we have to go back to the beginning. Because Jesus is addressing here a desire rooted in God's good creation. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us he created the male and female. Be fruitful and increase in number, he said. And after his creation acts, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Chapter 2 of Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Note that Jesus says, sorry, the Bible records that it was all very good. Sex did not arrive after the fall. This was all very good. Elsewhere in a discussion about divorce, Jesus adds this, Matthew chapter 19. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus is returning to the origin. Here's what Christian teaching does in many ways. It doesn't say what's novel so we can get away from the past. It says, how did God originally establish things? Let's get back to that. Because it was very good. So Jesus is re returning to God's design as establishing the context for the healthy expression of his good gift of sexual desire. Now I'm aware that apart, never mind hitting our culture, confronting our culture, which teaches completely different, I'm aware that even right there we can hit a couple of issues. One is this, that for some... In all honesty, to hear that sex is a good part of God's good creation is not so simple. In this world of supposed sexual liberation and freedom, there's a vast amount of sexual brokenness. Negative experiences, difficult memories, dysfunctional relationships, regret, abuse. In short, let me tell you, if you're not aware, which I'm sure you are, there is an awful lot of sexual pain around. And there will be sexual pain in this room. On one hand. On the other hand, for others, sexual desire being a good gift can blind people, some, to what is otherwise obviously stated and clearly stated in the Bible, which is that not all sexual desire is good or healthy. I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a pastor in a church somewhere else in the country, and he talked about two marriages in his church 
where the husband of one and the wife of the other had got together. And when confronted about it, their answer was this, I quote, God is in this. No, he wasn't. That is so blatant. What's happened there? This feels good. This seems right. And in our culture, what seems good and feels right trumps everything, it seems, including sometimes God's word. But again, I haven't answered fully. I want to ask again. Why is Jesus so insistent that marriage is the only context for sexual intimacy? Because in God's design, sexual intimacy is not only the expression of an attraction two people feel for each other, and it's certainly not merely satisfying an appetite. Sexual intimacy is a serious, physical and emotional, fully exposed expression and celebration of all the oneness and commitment that only marriage can mean. I'll say it again because it's a long statement. Sexual intimacy is a serious, physical and emotional, fully exposed expression and celebration of all the oneness and commitment that only marriage means. It expresses a unity that only truly makes sense in a marriage covenant. And until recently, that was much more an accepted norm. The invention of the pill, great invention, the invention of easily accessible contraception has been a blessing. It's taken away, though, the danger of pregnancy from casual sex and has made an enormous difference. So Jesus here says very simply, bluntly, do not commit adultery or any sexual intimacy outside marriage. Because to do so shows that you've missed the point of God's good design for sexual intimacy. And therefore, let me make a few points. Number one, sexual intimacy outside a marriage detaches sex from its God-given meaning as an expression of the oneness and the commitment and the unity that only a marriage brings. Number two, sexual intimacy before marriage is therefore a premature expression of oneness, not yet matched by the commitment in the rest of your relationship. And let me just say this to a culture that is literally offended by every word that I'm saying. Casual, casual, no commitment sex is quite simply an oxymoron. What does that mean? It makes no sense at all, whatever you are being told. Thirdly, sexual stimulation outside relationship, outside the marriage relationship, for example, pornography, masturbation, turns something designed to bring a husband and wife together, giving to one another in celebration of their relationship and unity into something purely selfish. Let me tell you that for the, the message of the day is experiment, watch, 
do whatever you like, you have a right to express yourself, is nothing more than a big business pushing you to damaging selfishness. And let's say this, number four, this is important. Sexual intimacy within marriage is only authentic when it expresses the love and unity and intimacy and commitment of self-giving love in the rest of that marriage. It's not simply a right or a physical matter detached from the health of the rest of your marriage. Let me say it again. All of that is about as countercultural as can possibly be in modern 21st century Western society. Is God anti sex? As is often thought, not at all. It's a gift he invented. Is God therefore in favour of any sex goes as long as it's love? Not at all. Because sex is powerful and expresses something specific and precious. See, our loving Father, our Creator, is not a killjoy. He knows that our health, our freedom, our flourishing does not come with the, with the absence of all guidelines, as our culture would like to say, but within his costly guidelines. And then secondly, Jesus goes on. But I tell you, you see, there's more. Jesus does more than simply uphold the Old Testament ethic as they understood it conveniently for the men in those days. He raises the stakes. Don't you find Jesus is like that? He's <laughs> he frequently is raising the stakes. So verse 28 But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a certain convenient interpretation of God's righteous standard, do not commit adultery. It went like this, well, as, as long as I don't have sex with a married woman, I'm doing just fine, thank you very much. But Jesus, as he is apt to do, reaches deeper. He gets to the root of the issue. Because God's intent in all of his laws was not simply external behaviour. God is interested in much more than behaviour modification. He's after hearts. Hearts who love him and hearts who love people around them. The root of the seventh commandment was deeper than just don't commit a particular act. He always goes deeper because he puts the spotlight on inner purity, not external action. After all, it's the internal life that leads to external actions anyway. So it clearly was never what was believed in those days. God's best for us, you see, is never just the avoidance of certain negative behaviours, but the presence of positive internal motives and attitudes. In this case, 
Do not commit adultery, but I tell you, in this case, so that we love God and honour others by keeping ourselves from entertaining and acting on the thoughts that might end up in a dangerous sexual situation. What does he mean by lustfully? Well, that word means to long after with selfish greed. One writer put it like this, the lustful look locks eyes on another person and uses him or her to fuel one's sexual imagination. The lustful look, he says, is intended specifically to stir one's own sexual desire, which I should say often starts looking too long such that images seen become thoughts to act on. See, the prohibition is not against unavoidable reflexive sexual attraction. It's certainly not against, of course, the prospect of healthy married sexual intimacy. Jesus' prohibition is against responding to and stoking the flames of sexual attraction and temptation outside the marriage relationship. Now, what might that include in our day? Well, it might include things like this. Sexting. It might include things like the sexual content in movies and TV shows which we watch. So can I just say, I'm, I'm of no doubt at all that what used to be an 18 is a 15 and what used to be a 15 is a 12. And there's a real danger that 12s will become something else. I'm, I'm of no doubt about that. I've lived long enough to see a little bit of a pattern there. And we just think that's how it is these days. It might look like the jokes we engage in. And of course, it looks like the epidemic, I mean that sincerely, the epidemic of pornography. Pornography is self-centered. It's unrelational. It escalates. It objectifies. It creates unrealistic expectations. And it fuels exploitation. A few weeks ago, someone in Citygate took the very, very courageous step of saying, Tim, can I have a conversation with you? I didn't know what about. We sat down a few weeks ago, and they said how they were in the grip of pornography. Can I just say to you, I applaud that man's courage. And there will be others, I have no question. I'm not saying this with judgment. I'm making this here a statement of reasonable, of in, reasonable intuition. There will be others here, caught there. And I mean no word of judgment upon you, but I do want to warn you to do something about that. It will be damaging you and others around you. We should also add that this prohibition that Jesus is talking about here is also a prohibition in marriage, I've hinted at this earlier, in marriage against selfish actions that leave a spouse feeling used or abused or demanded of instead of treasured and loved. 
Now, where is all that so far landing with you? Where are your danger points? We'll come back to that a little bit later. Which leads thirdly to this in Jesus' words here. So he takes us one step further. And he basically says this. If there's anything in your life that's in any danger of causing you to commit adultery, whether physically or in your heart, or I should say to develop a dangerous emotional attachment to someone, which is where things often begin, take drastic action. So he says this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. I don't think I should just say in brackets that what Jesus is saying is that sexual sin means you lose your salvation and end up in hell. I don't think that's what he's saying. I read a book a number of years ago about a guy, and actually a film was made of it um, more recently. This guy called Aaron Ralston walked into the Blue John Canyon, big mountains in Utah in the States, on what should have been an eight-hour hike. But while he was scrambling through a narrow section, he dislodged a huge boulder that rolled and pinned his hand and forearm to a rock face. (laughs) absolute nightmare. His supplies were gone. There was virtually no chance of rescue. No mobile phone to just call for help. Unless he did something drastic, he would not make it out alive. By the third day, three days? By the third day, he figured out there was only one option. We should probably be beginning to work out what it was. One option only open to him. And he spent the next two days preparing himself. So after five days trapped by this massive boulder, Aaron Ralston resolved to set himself free by amputating his own right hand while fully conscious, using his only resource a multi-tool. Sorry for the gruesome details. It took about an hour. He broke his radius and his ulna, the two bones. He broke them, the two bones in his forearm, and then cut through the remaining skin and tendons, freeing himself and saving his life. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying you should physically maim yourself. (laughs) Take out your right eye, chop off your right hand, you've still got a left eye and a left hand. Chop them off, you've still got an imagination. That's not what he's saying. (laughs) In practice, Jesus means this. He means not remove your eye or hand, but remove yourself from the situation that is gaining access through your eye or hand. He's saying that acting on a sexual attraction or desire 
other, for anyone other than the person you are married to places you in danger of ending up where you never thought possible. You have probably heard of stories. I have. It would never have seemed possible at the beginning. Here's one from the Bible. See, David's eye became the gateway to disaster. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says this. I mean, he should have been off at war. First problem, do something positive. Here he is lazing around, he's in danger. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful. Anything sinful yet? Well, he probably should have been off at war, but that aside, you can't necessarily guard everything you see. You can't necessarily guard against the beginning of every conversation. But what he's done is begun to chase where the look took him. And it ended in disaster. Jesus' message is this. Take drastic action over dangerous sexual intimacy and take it early. You might, you might want to say again, our culture would certainly want to say, hang on a minute, this is all offensive. But isn't this, isn't this at least a bit over the top? To which the answer is a simple and blunt no. Because the consequences of sexual sin are so great. See, all sin is equal, isn't it? Yeah? You're not sure, are you? Because you know there's a trick. Well, yes, all sin is equal. But you could also argue that it's not really all equal. The answer is yes and no. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? That doesn't happen out of every other sin. Verse 18, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. All sin is equal, yes, basically yes, and not quite. And certainly not all consequences of sin are equal. The consequences of adultery are terrifying. But also, in a marriage situation, the consequences of pornography and of sexual betrayal in any form. Why is it so damaging? Well, it goes back to what the point of sex is. I have completely opened myself and been utterly vulnerable with you, and now you've betrayed me in one way or another. The trust that's broken, the betrayal that's felt, the suspicion that's left is horrific. Gouge it out! Cut it off! Before it has time to do terrible damage. Where does all that leave us? It leaves us in a bunch of places. Let me just run through a few quickly. And then we'll respond. Number one, we're all humbled in some way by Jesus' words here and elsewhere. We're all sinners. 
we're all in some way sexual sinners. Praise God, there is one who lived a righteous life for us, including sexually, who lived it in our place and through whom we have forgiveness and a righteous defense. Praise God for his provision of Jesus. Number two, we're all, wherever we are in life, warned about the dangers of sexual sin. We all need the power of the Holy Spirit who Jesus himself poured out so that we can live the life that he calls us to live. A life which does not commit adultery in the flesh or in the heart. Number three, for those particularly shamed by their own sexual sin, don't wash it off, but confront it. And in Jesus, there is forgiveness. There is power to change and to face the consequences of your sin. Number four, for those who have been violated and sinned against sexually, there is in Jesus hope. A tough journey of healing and restoration without minimizing the damage done. But there is hope. Two more. Number five. Some, and some here, I suspect, not that I know your situation, some need to take courageous action, probably involving a conversation. Jesus says, if your right eye or your right hand causes you to stumble, some of you are being caused to stumble. There's something in your way that is causing you to trip up. You need to find another way, and that will almost always involve a conversation. Some of you are going to have, some of you, it's a bit uncomfortable. The action point is find someone you trust. That person who spoke to me took the courage, the risk, if you like, to have a conversation and found there was grace and seriousness. We need to take this seriously, but not with a judgmentalism. Some of you, on the thoughts of having a conversation, are probably in marriages. Let me just, that's not the subject for today, but I have to say, that's probably in marriages where this is a really difficult matter. If you're not married right yet, this is a little aside, if you're not married yet, please get this right. Because getting married doesn't solve this. Getting married may actually expose more of this. Some of you husbands need to have the courage to have a loving, gentle conversation with your wives. Some of you wives might need to do the same with your husbands and find somewhere, wherever you either are on the usual spectrum, find some ground that works for you together. And finally, it leaves us loving Jesus more. Because his tough, honest words are wise 
powerful, hopeful, and tell a far better story than our culture can ever offer. And His righteousness that covers us. Perhaps you could just close your eyes where you are. Don't worry, I'm not going to call anybody forward this morning. I realise this might have been really painful for some. I knew that. But I love it that Jesus has a better story on every subject there possibly is, including this one. And maybe all you need to do at the moment is just close your eyes and be brave enough to be honest with yourself. Because we love to avoid that step even. Where does this land for you? I know it's been very serious. That's because the passage is serious. Where does it land for you? Please be honest. God knows anyway. Loves you anyway. And then, can I say or dare you for those for whom? Something really has landed this morning. That the best thing you can do is to talk to someone. be for you. If you really want to deal with something and don't know who to speak to, but you're prepared to do so, you're welcome to email our pastoral line. I know that's very unrelational initially at least, but I want to offer that at least. And here's what I'd like us to do. I trust you've been serious and honest with yourself. I trust if you've had to do so, you've made a decision. If you are in real pain through sexual suffering, I would also urge you to speak to someone you trust. What I'd like us to do is simply this. I'd like us to sing a song of surrender because wherever we are, the best thing for us to do is to say, Lord, I am completely yours. And even these tough words I'll take as grace to me because every word is grace. So can I just ask us to stand if you're able? And with the seriousness of the passage that we've been speaking about this morning in our minds, to surrender. Holy Spirit, thank you, you are always with us. 
Thank you, Jesus. Every word of yours is grace to us. We thank you there's power to live the life you've called us to. And Lord, help us in this moment to surrender again. And say, Lord, your word is my word. Give me power and courage. In your name we pray. Amen.